are listening to the Beeline Podcast, your trusted source of showbiz buzz and totally unbiased Broadway ramblings. Wink, wink. As always, I'm your host, Emma Badger, and what a beautiful morning it is. Today kicks off the first episode of my new three-part mini-podcast series revolving around some of musical theater's most acclaimed music and lyric writers. The artists I've chosen to dig into are Rodgers and Hammerstein, Stephen Sondheim, and Jason Robert Brown. And while it's pretty undisputed that each of these composers and lyricists are some of the most well-recognized of their times, I was intrigued to figure out what qualities set these writers apart from their contemporaries and how their individual styles and messages within their works became so influential. Now, of course, we have to kick it off with Rodgers and Hammerstein. These artists reformed and forever altered the theater world. They are noted for revolutionizing American musical theater, integrating music, plot, and dance like never before. They virtually created a monopoly on Broadway and in the theater world with 29 shows together. And to this day, their work continues to captivate audiences and inspire up-and-coming generations of writers and composers for the stage. They were regarded by their peers as the best and richest pair of businessmen in show business. R&H had their own publishing house, sole ownership of their dramatic properties, and a casting and producing organization that held open auditions every Thursday morning to spot new talent and fill out long-running and touring productions of their original works. They are two of the most influential producers of popular entertainment in the second half of the 20th century. Now, before we really get into this episode and every episode of this series, I want to make something clear. I am no expert. And while I almost, almost, have a degree in musical theater, I will in a few weeks, that's about my only credential to talk about these people. I'm no R&H expert, I'm merely an admirer, and I have no secret insider scoop on these writers that you couldn't find yourself with a little digging of your own. And I don't want this to come off as a lecture. This is a collection of the research I have done on the partners and a summation of what I thought was the most interesting about them or what was most helpful for understanding what made them who they were. And to be honest, my research ended up to be about 50 pages of notes for this podcast. Obviously, I can't read everything that I thought was interesting about them, but I'll try to pick and choose what I think is most important. I'll probably say a lot of things you already know about R&H and maybe a few things that you don't if we're lucky, but I want this to be a discussion as well. Now I know I'm the only one talking, so how is this a discussion, right? But I really do want it to be just us reviewing the facts that we know about these people and then using that as a foundation to explore. Who were these people at their core and what made them write what they did when they did? What inspired them? What about their work inspires us in the world of musical theater today? I want to ponder why these writers and composers made what they made and what made them household names. And of course, I couldn't go without mentioning that the information from this episode is gathered largely from the book Something Wonderful by Todd S. Purdom, as well as some really great interviews with the artists, all of which I will link in the description of this podcast if you'd like to do some extra digging of your own, which I totally recommend. So, let's ponder together. Let's talk early life Oscar Hammerstein II. So he was born July 12th, 1895, and his family was already immersed in show business, and Oscar was essentially born into the theater. 
His grandfather, who was also his namesake, was a prominent opera producer. His uncle was a Broadway producer, and his father managed a vaudeville theater called the Victoria in Manhattan. But of course, Oscar would one day overshadow all of them. He actually grew up having very little contact with his grandfather, as Oscar's father desperately wanted his offspring to find a career outside of the theater. Obviously, thank goodness, that did not happen. When he did first meet his grandfather, though, it was in the lobby of the Victoria Theater. So he went home, apparently slept for 14 hours, and then when he woke up, he decided that the theater would be his life work. Oscar was never all that close with his father either, though. He later recalled, quote, Kissing him goodbye in the morning and hello in the evening was nearly the whole story of my experience with my father during my early youth. I didn't really get to know him. He was, however, a mama's boy. He recalled of her, She was my friend, my confidant, obviously my worshipful admirer, and also the firmest and strongest person I knew. Very sweet. However, when his mother died, Oscar was only 15 years old, and that shaped his view of death ever since. He claimed that he lived an unshaked life by death, resisting the idea that grief must come afterward, which I think is really interesting. Over four decades after his mother's passing, Oscar wrote to his son Bill something perhaps telling of his theatrical works. Whatever order or form I have got out of my life has been extracted from chaos. My strange, disorderly, unsystematic family may have developed in me a tolerance for disorder which makes it possible for me to live in a disorderly world, even though I crave another kind. And is that not telling of his lyrics? And Stephen Sondheim, who we will talk much more about very soon, who long studied under Oscar's guidance, would judge that Oscar's point of view was both more hard-headed and more quirky than people who think of him as a naive and dreamy idealist might expect. In his childhood, he was known as Oki by his friends, which is absolutely adorable, and he began piano lessons at nine years old, so he was exposed to music pretty early on. When the time came to think about college, his father continued to push him away from the theater and towards law. And he actually did attend Columbia University and then Columbia Law. But when his father died in 1914, the rest of his family encouraged him to take another crack at his true calling, theater. And thank goodness they did. While he was at Columbia, he acted in varsity productions, and it is there that he became both an actor and a writer. After his days at school, he worked in a law firm for a bit as a process server. Any law students in the room have any idea what that means? But he was pretty miserable and he promptly quit. I don't blame him. He was then approached by his uncle Arthur, who had taken over the family theater business after his father passed, and Oscar begged him to work in one of his shows. Now, Uncle Arthur had promised Oscar's father that he'd keep Oscar out of show business, but Oscar was determined. He insisted to his uncle, it's in my blood, and furthermore, I need the money. So Arthur first hired Oscar as an assistant stage manager, but then he gave Oscar the permanent staff job of production stage manager. Oscar set out to learn every aspect of the theater as an office worker during the day and a play reader and stage manager at night. But Uncle Arthur asked him to promise not to try to write anything of his own for at least a year. And indeed, after about a year, a show at their theater called Furs and Frills had encountered some trouble and the overworked authors asked Oscar to write lyrics for the second act opening number. And in the spring of 1919, Oscar was finally at work on a piece of his own called The Light. It opened in May of that year, but The Light puttered out after only seven performances. 
but Oscar continued to write shows for his uncle's theater, and it was Otto Harbach, a lyric writer himself, who advised the fast-paced Oscar to slow down and think seriously about the goals of each show before putting lyrics down on the paper. Harbach not only contributed to Oscar's strong value in the dramatics and plot of a show, but also inspired his lyrical language surrounding flora and fauna, which was common in opera during the time. We're talking moon, stars, dew, kittens, bright golden hazes upon the meadow, etc. And Oscar worked tirelessly on show after show, producing anywhere from one to three a year, sometimes with Harbach and sometimes with others, including George Gershwin. Not bad. The one show I find most interesting during this period of his writing was a show called New Toys, which was a comedy about a marriage that turns unhappy with the addition of children. And now, I know, not every show about marriage is directly related to Sondheim's company, but man, does my brain want to make that connection. <laughs> but what we do at least see here is a new type of concept for musical comedy. This was not a super common storyline. Originally, Oscar had married Myra Finn, who was actually a distant cousin of Rogers. And weirdly enough, Richard Rogers' father, who was a doctor, delivered both of Oscar and Myra's babies. Connections. But Myra had been having a string of infidelities, and their marriage was becoming more and more strained. And on a boat to London, he met Dorothy, who was then, at the time, married to Henry Jacobson, and despite their current marriages, they fell in love at first sight. They spent time together and met often, discussing their unhappy marriages, and Dorothy repeatedly asked Henry for a divorce, but he was certain her feelings for Oscar would pass. However, both Oscar and Dorothy ended up divorcing their partners, and they got married two weeks after. <laughs> but Dorothy and Oscar were very happy together, and this marriage likely inspired his later works detailing love at first sight and domestic bliss. Think Some Enchanted Evening, or Oklahoma, from Oklahoma. It was for Oscar's show, Rose Marie, that the playbill stated, The musical numbers of this play are such an integral part of the action that we do not think we should list them as separate episodes. So here, we are definitely seeing the manifestation of these plot-driven songs that Oscar was inspired to write. Richard Rogers was once asked what he'd done before he became a composer, and his answer was simply, I was a baby. How amazing is that? But it does kind of seem to ring true. Music had always been a part of Rogers' life. Richard Rogers was born June 28, 1902, into a very musical family, which would gather around the piano before and after dinner, singing not classical pieces or hymns, but popular show tunes from the newest operettas on the scene. Rogers recalled in his childhood home there was music every day, and claimed that his mother was the best sight reader he ever met. His family moved to Manhattan, where, at only four years old, Rogers began plunking out melodies on the family piano. By six, he could play fluently, but it was all by ear. Unlike Oscar, formal piano lessons were not his jam. He played the typical chopsticks, but threw in his own improvised chords and changed the rhythms. By twelve, he spent hours each day on the piano bench working at his craft. His first teacher was his Aunt Tilly, but he quickly surpassed her skill level and began playing by ear. Roger's undisputed idol was Jerome Kern, stating, The Kern scores had a freshness, and I think even as a child I knew that. I think he was a father to a lot of us. The sound of a Jerome Kern tune was all his own, the first truly American musical theater, and it pointed the way I wanted to be led. Rogers spent his early teenage years in Camp Wigwam in Maine, where he composed some of his first songs. And at age 14, Rogers would use the entirety of his allowance to attend Saturday matinees. 
And at this point in time, his older brother Mortimer brought Richard along to see a show at his college, Columbia University. After the show, he took Richard backstage to meet one of the actors and co-authors of the work, none other than Oscar Hammerstein II. This is their first meeting. Hammerstein's talent and attitude left a lasting impression, and Rogers decided right then that he should go to Columbia and write his own varsity shows. So he did, in fact, attend Columbia himself. R&H even wrote a few school songs together for a charity show. So they were doing some little collabs way before their smashing career as true professional partners. Additionally, in 1921, Rogers studied at the Institute of Musical Art, which is now better known as Juilliard. In 1925, he met his Dorothy, sister of his friend Ben, who was 16 at the time. Now, Rogers was 23 and decided to wait a year before formally asking her out. But then they dated for three and a half years and they were married in 1930. Both Rogers and Hammerstein made a name for themselves and found success with other partners before ever collaborating together professionally. Oscar actually made his early mark in theater collabing with Jerome Kern. After several hits, they took a novel about a Mississippi River boat and adapted it for the stage. They called it Showboat. You might have heard of it. Showboat became one of the most influential works in American theater and definitely established Hammerstein in the musical world. In homage to the geographical feature that runs through the story of Showboat, Oscar employed sparing use of rhyme in his lyrics to emulate the flowing and changing of the Mississippi River. This is especially evident in the songs Old Man River and Can't Help Loving That Man. Hammerstein explained, if a listener is made rhyme-conscious, his interest might be diverted from the story of the song. If, on the other hand, you keep him waiting for a rhyme, he is more likely to listen to the meaning of the words. And, as we'll talk about in a later episode, Mr. Stephen Sondheim is also quite rhyme-conscious himself and places high importance on the effect that rhyme can have. Showboat opened on December 27, 1927 to rave reviews. The plot-driven songs made this show super successful, and it was something that we hadn't really seen before. Sondheim later commented about Hammerstein's artistic process here, stating, It isn't just the controversial subject matter. It's the fact that he was trying to do something based on reality instead of some fairy tale. Now, Oscar flounced around Hollywood for a bit working on film projects as well as producing a few flops with Kern. But it seemed here that the problem was Oscar was paid by the week to churn out a certain amount of lyrics and turn them in, whether they were good or not. Hammerstein said of this time, I was selling words instead of gambling with them, speculating with them. That wasn't good for me. But Oscar kept his humor alive through this trying time, as seen in a letter from 1938 to the playwright and producer High Craft. Forgive me for not writing sooner. I have been so busy writing flops that I haven't had time for anything else. Oscar was only 46, but it seemed as though his career had come to an end. He and Dorothy settled and bought a 72-acre cattle farm in Pennsylvania. In January of 1942, Oscar's producer friend, Max Gordon, wrote to him from Hollywood. In his letter, he said, I want you to keep your courage, because you and I will still do great things in the theater together, but they won't be musical comedies. If I have any plays that need an excellent director, you will certainly have a crack at that, and if you set your mind down to write a play, I know you can do it. You cannot afford to waste your time anymore with musical shows, and I cannot afford to produce them. But Gordon didn't know just how soon he would be eating his words. He had no idea that Oscar, just a few weeks earlier, had had a guest over to his farm to discuss an exciting new project about a state called Oklahoma. Rogers collabed with a student he met through a mutual friend at Columbia University, Lorenz Hart, known as Larry. 
According to the book Broadway, The American Musical, after meeting Larry and spending the afternoon with him discussing rhyme structures, masculine versus feminine endings, and how good songs should go, Rogers famously wrote, I left Hart's house having acquired in one afternoon a career, a partner, a best friend, and a source of lasting irritation. Larry had strong ideas about the current Broadway musicals and aimed for something higher. He told Rogers that most contemporary shows of the day were childish and bland, with lyrics that hinted at illiteracy. He believed the theater audience deserved better, and Rogers agreed. Rogers and Hart were asked to compose their first full Broadway score for the show Poor Little Ritz Girl. Their Broadway debut together as a duo was a little flop show called A Lonely Romeo, which opened in 1919. But their partnership really took off in about 1920, when Rogers was just 18 years old. The opportunity seemed too good to be true, and it kind of was. When Rogers sat down with his family to see the show, they were shocked to realize that half of Rogers' score had been thrown out and replaced with tunes by Sigmund Romberg, and no one thought to tell him beforehand. And Rogers decided right then that he would never let something like this happen to him again. He wanted full control over his property. And we see that a lot in his later career. In 1925, their breakthrough charity show called The Garrick Gaieties was a smashing success and really gave the duo the confidence they needed to continue on together in the business. Within a year, Rogers and Hart would have three shows running on Broadway at once. And like I mentioned before, Rogers and Hart were determined to do something different for their shows than the typical princess shows that were popular successes in the day. This gave them an intrigue and an edge. Rogers said, the one possible formula was, don't have a formula. The one rule for success was, don't follow it up. They followed their formula, and from 1925 to 1930, they wrote for 18 shows, including both reviews and book musicals. And soon, their musical comedies were being performed on Broadway and London's West End. The songs that came from this duo really encapsulated the jazz age full of youthful energy and disregard for serious society. They too spent time in Hollywood, writing scores and songs for movie musicals, but just like Oscar's Hollywood experiences, they were mostly unsatisfactory and didn't bring in much reward. Rogers and Hart were very close, both as writing partners and as friends. For quite a while, Larry actually lived with Rogers and his wife Dorothy. The pair seemed to be extremely successful and worked together greatly from an outside perspective, but there was a bit of a hidden imbalance in their partnership. Though Rogers was younger than Hart, he was always the more dominant force in the partnership. Hart referred to him as the general or the professor. By the early 1940s, Rogers became concerned with Larry's declining health due to alcoholism, and Rogers could never find Hart. He's quoted reflecting back on the situation saying, he would disappear, and he had to be found, and he had to be locked up in a room, and I had to stay with him there until he wrote. Obviously, all this took a major strain on their relationship, both as friends and as business partners. Rogers felt bad looking elsewhere, but he also felt like he didn't have much of a choice. Tracking someone down and dragging them into work every day was getting exhausting. Wrestled with the idea of creating a new partnership with Hammerstein. Hart was an extremely talented and clever lyricist, but he was unreliable. Listen to this clip from an interview with Rogers talking about this situation with Larry. Larry was slipping very fast, and I had responsibilities. And as much as I regretted it, there was nothing I could do. I couldn't stop working myself because Larry couldn't be worked with. I had tremendous faith in Oscar. Oscar had had a bad time of it for many years. But I knew 
beyond argument about this enormous talent. And I felt that if something did happen to Larry, this was the logical direction for me to move in. And even after Oklahoma opened to amazing success, the public still knew the partnership of Rogers and Hart and expected it to prosper. Rogers thought one great last chance for Hart would be a revival of their 1927 hit, A Connecticut Yankee. One September morning in 1941, Rogers had been in Philadelphia to watch over a tryout for one of George Abbott's new musicals, for which he was acting as a silent partner. As Larry was uninterested in working on anything, Rogers was desperate for some project to work on. But he didn't want anyone to think badly on Larry or think that Rogers and Hart were through, so he agreed to work with Abbott as long as his name would be kept out of the program. But on this morning, Rogers made an appointment with Hammerstein for lunch at his farm. Hammerstein was equally as happy to receive the call, as his last real hit with Jerome Kern had been about a decade earlier. At lunch, Hammerstein listened while Rogers explained his frustrations with Hart, who was simply incapable of collaborating effectively any longer. Hammerstein thought long about Rogers' confession and told him, I think you ought to keep working with Larry just so long as he is able to keep working with you. It would kill him if you walked away while he was still able to function. But if the time ever comes when he cannot function, call me. I'll be there. Yet, after Rogers proposed a musical version of the play Green Grow the Lilacs and Hart immediately declined, Rogers turned to Hammerstein and he heartily accepted the project, which would become their famous Oklahoma. But Hart would have to promise to remain sober. Hart agreed and wrote six new songs for the show, but unfortunately, as soon as Hart turned in his lyrics for the show, he started drinking again. He showed up for the top of the second act on opening night after giving all his tickets away to the wrong people, and he was singing along loudly with the actors. Rogers had him ushered out of the theater, and Hart was found wandering the streets in the snow and was turned into the hospital where he was diagnosed with pneumonia. And three days later, Hart passed away. Even after all the turmoil with their relationship and partnership, Rogers always thought of Hart kindly. He can be heard defending his longtime friend in this 1960 interview. What and kind of a man was Hart? Uh, well, just about as varied a personality as you can possibly imagine. He was difficult in many ways. Uh, never, never meant to be difficult. He was a sweet man. He was a very good man. He was a very kind man. From what I can gather about him, he was a very short, not very good-looking man. No, that's not true. Uh, he was short. He's a little bit of a fellow. But uh, if you took a good look at his face and tried to dissociate his face from his body, you would have found an extraordinarily handsome one. Now that Rogers and Hammerstein were teamed up, they were creating a new show at least every other year for the next over 14 years. Oscar always wrote lyrics first, and then Richard added music, hardly ever in the same room unless they needed to be. This is interesting because while working with Hart, it was the total opposite for Richard. In the early years, Rogers and Hart would typically write in the same room simultaneously, of course, in years later, Rogers was always writing melodies first and then trying to track down Hart and beg him to add some lyrics. But this style of writing music and then adding the words was originally popular among many composing duos of the time after European operettas had come to the States and English words had to be fitted into the pre-existing tunes. 
Rogers explains the logistics of his collaborative writing with Hammerstein in this soundbite. Uh, Oscar is one of the few people in the entire world who has a, I'm talking about lyric writers, of course, who has a tremendous sense of construction. And without a tune, his lyrics are beautifully built. And he likes the latitude of being able to write first without the constriction of a, uh, of a melody. On the other hand, I find that uh, having the lyric, in addition to the situation in the play, is very helpful to me. It gives me an extra push into the solution of the problem of finding the tune. In terms of inspiration, Hammerstein said he doesn't think a message of inspiration ever comes down to you from a clear sky and makes you sit down and write feverishly. Ideas come to you because you're looking very hard for them. Oscar's lyric writing in general was very painstaking and careful. He said in an interview with Tony Thomas in 1960, when you write fast, you don't write very well. It's much safer to do the whole job very carefully. Artists who are careless with their work someday or other must pay for it. In this interview, he tells a story about the artist who sculpted the Statue of Liberty. And when a helicopter flies over it today, you can see the top, and even at the top, you have this finely sculpted hair. Now, at the time when the artist made this, he had no idea that something like a helicopter would ever fly over his statue. That was something that he probably could have never imagined. The most he'd think were some seagulls would be up there, but he crafted every inch of it, even the parts that he thought no one would ever see anyway. This story broke its way into Oscar's philosophy of his lyric writing. It's kind of funny because Rogers seemed to write very fast. This is, of course, when he finally got down to putting notes on pages, but he spent many months of planning and thinking of tunes before finally sitting down at the piano bench and cranking out a full score in only a few hours. But Hammerstein really desired to ground himself into whatever story he was writing for. He would draw maps of the places his characters lived in, write down the slang of the region, and even what food items were popular. Think clam bakes. He was dedicated to making these characters genuine, and he wanted what came out of their mouths to be relevant to their cultural experience. He takes more of a nostalgic approach on inspiration. Things that you saw or thought even years ago that strike a chord with you may stay with you and urge you to write about them even years later. This sums up his lyrics so well. They all have such a sweet, sweeping nostalgia to them to where you can feel nostalgic over them even hearing them for the first time. Hammerstein said, when you're writing, you're calling on all that is you. Somehow or other, I think you come out in the thing that you're writing. Rogers takes a similar view, stating, there's a common misconception that you can stand on the top of a mountain and look at a sunset and sit down and write something beautiful. I don't think it goes that way. I think the sunset, the mountain, the experience all go inside and may not come out for 50 years, but they become a part of your knowledge, part of your personality, part of your education, part of your technique, and eventually you express yourself. Hammerstein, being the careful lyric writer he was, once complained that Rogers' facility so irked him that he could have thrown a brick through the phone when informed how quickly his partner had found a melody. But when asked how long it took him to compose a score, Rogers would reply, do you mean flying time or elapsed time? 
Counting everything, the most I could make it come to was about five hours, but the total elapsed time covered months of discussion and planning. So he didn't just sit down and things magically came to his brain, he actually thought about things for a very long time, and by the time he actually got to the piano, he had some material to work with. But through 18 years of collaboration, through ups and downs, flops and successes, it seemed that this pair always maintained an unbroken public front of unity, harmony, and calm. But the truth was, of course, a little bit more complex. They definitely had their issues and their disagreements, especially when it came to picking shows. They very often had tiffs about a melody or a resolution here, an odd-sounding lyric there, but when it came down to it, they were always able to overcome their own stubbornness and deliver the best work they could together. But apparently, to the end of their days, each maintained that he'd never been quite sure whether the other really liked him. In 1941, one of the Theatre Guild's producers, Teresa Helburn, saw a summer stock performance of the play Green Grow the Lilacs by Oklahoma native Lynn Riggs, a gay cowboy turned poet and playwright. The play captured a certain nostalgia of the Midwest with its quaintness, sentimentality, and childish melodrama, and it struck a chord with Helburn, and she immediately thought it would make a great musical. It was actually Helburn who decided that straying from the typical musical comedy and producing a play with music that aids the plot was just what the theater guild needed. And after Hart turned Rogers down to work on this Green Grow the Lilacs adaptation, Rogers asked Hammerstein to lunch. At which Oscar told Rogers, I don't have to read it. I know it, and I'm crazy about it. I'd love to do it with you. And it's really in that moment that Rogers and Hart disappeared, and it became Rogers and Hammerstein. Hammerstein's approach to the source material was revolutionary in its nature. Keep it plain, keep it true. It needed to be intimate and personal. But R&H knew that the charm in the story was found in its rural environment and its relatable characters. They agreed that these characters and their stories had to be respected without regard to spectacle. They didn't want any showy songs that display the writer's cleverness and specialty dances or comedic gags. They simply wanted a strong, driving narrative. This was totally out of the box for this time. Hammerstein was deeply inspired by the opening stage directions in the play Green Grow the Lilacs, which are so beautiful and telling of what was to follow that I just have to read them to you. These directions read, It is a radiant summer morning several years ago, the kind of morning which, enveloping the shapes of earth, men, cattle in a meadow, blades of the young corn, streams, makes them seem to exist now for the first time, their images giving off a visible golden emanation that is partly true and partly a trick of the imagination, focusing to keep alive a loveliness that may pass away. That is gorgeous. And of course, these stage directions are what gave us our Oh What a Beautiful Morning. And Rogers, years later, recalled receiving Hammerstein's lyrics to this song and stated, Well, you'd really have to be made of cement not to spark to that. He wrote the accompanying melody for the lyrics in about 10 minutes. So they decided to open the musical just as the play had opened, with the cowboy singing from the wings, with Aunt Eller churning butter in front of the farmhouse, and like the voice of the morning itself, Curly sings from offstage about the beautiful land surrounding him, a cappella. This move alone to have a simple, quiet opening without any ruckus or chorus girls signaled to the audience immediately that this show was going to be of a different breed. The Theatre Guild hadn't allotted a great budget for this show, so R&H opted for lesser-known talent when it came to casting, which became a really common trend in their career. 
The show was first titled Away We Go and worked through many other titles, and it's unclear exactly who suggested it should be named after the loving song about the land, Oklahoma, but it was Teresa Helburn who decided it should be followed by an exclamation point. Now, this was after about 10,000 press releases had already been prepared to be mailed out, so a few thousand exclamation points had to be inked in by hand. Now, Oklahoma is generally considered the first musical that wasn't a comedy, but rather tackled serious relationship issues. Now, I could definitely argue that we saw a bit of this tackling bigger issues idea in Showboat, but I'm not surprised that Oscar was game to bring this serious side to another musical of his. And shows like Pal Joey or Of Thee I Sing had made similar strides, but they did rely on the occasional musical comedy specialty number or dance for the sake of dancing rather than a storytelling device. But the intentional use of dance as a plot driving force is what distinguished Oklahoma from its predecessors. In the ballet that Agnes DeMille choreographed for this show, the female lead lives out a dream turned nightmare in which she is both repelled by and intrigued by the men who have asked her out to the box social. Having the character Lori express this inner turmoil and psychological distress that DeMille believed all young girls experience at one time or another not only made her extremely relatable and vulnerable, but having her make a decision through the dream and then act accordingly afterward made the dance a major plot point on its own, rather than a spectacle number. This was the revolutionary part. And when I think now of a show like Hamilton, where dance displays so much of the emotion of the show and creates so many pictures that guide the plot, it's so exciting to see how this integration of dance has affected the way we tell stories using our physicality. This revolutionary use of dance in Oklahoma gave us what we now consider the dream ballet, which would be implemented into musicals for years to come, such as in West Side Story or Fiddler on the Roof. Knowing the immense success and influence that this show would have, it's really hard to imagine that the cast was really worried and anxious leading up to the opening night. Oscar told his wife Dorothy, I don't know what to do if they don't like this. I don't know what to do because this is the only kind of show I can write. The seats of the St. James Theatre were far from full on opening night, and members of the cast were actually encouraged to invite their friends and family to see the show for free to fill up the house a bit more. It also wasn't much help that the marquee was blacked out due to wartime regulations. But of course, the audience absolutely adored it. They were screaming and hollering and just so excited to see a show like this. It really connected to them. Even Larry Hart showed up to the opening and ran up to Rogers exclaiming that he'd never had a better evening in his life and that the show would still be around for 20 years. And he was certainly right, give or take a few decades. Obtaining tickets to see the show was so impossible that it became a national joke. The show especially had appeal to servicemen shipping in and out of NYC. Those who couldn't get a ticket were often smuggled in to watch from the wings. But the show gave a certain ring of American pride that was extremely inspirational in this trying time. We were in the thick of World War II. One of the cast members' grandmothers, who was head of the drama committee for the New York State Federation of Women's Clubs, had a great thing to say about the show. She said, Oklahoma is the most wonderful musical for right now, when people are going out to fight for this country and may die for it, to be reminded of the kind of courage, the unselfconscious courage that settled this country. If something like this show came out today, I don't think it would have near the reception it did in the 40s. Eventually, Oklahoma became the first American musical to play around the world. 
while no single hit show had run for more than 500 performances before it, Oklahoma ran for a smashing 2,212 shows, which spanned over five years and nine weeks. This was the first real phenomenon in modern Broadway history, and it's always so interesting for me to think about Oklahoma considering the types of hit shows we have nowadays. It's hard for me to get excited about auctioning picnic baskets or churning butter, and I don't think to sit down and listen through this cast album in my spare time. While the characters have very real feelings and can be relatable, the story is not something that really excites me or is all that relatable to my life experience. But it's all about timing. You have to think about when this show came out and what was happening at the time, you know, the war, and what America needed. What it needed was Oklahoma. So it accepted it more than warmly and it became a part of our culture. Even if it had opened a few years earlier than it did before the war, I think the tunes would have been enjoyed, but the story would have been easily shrugged off and it wouldn't have run for nearly as long. Broadway the American Musical says, It opened just when audiences, after a year of combat losses and complete retrenchment of domestic life, needed to be reminded of what they were fighting for. Something about the land. So yes, a lot of its accolades go to its revolution of American theater, but at the bottom of it, it's really just the story that America needed in that specific moment. And the infectious lyrics from the opening number declared that the new century was America's and that everything would turn out to be going America's way. While Rodgers and Hammerstein were tempted to bask in their success, they also knew it was very important to be strategic about their next steps. They didn't want to say yes to another show unless they could see it being another masterpiece, and they knew that that might take some time to find. An offer came from 20th Century Fox in the summer of 1943 to create a musical remake of the family comedy movie State Fair, which had premiered in 1933, and it felt irresistible to the duo, though they both hated Hollywood. But because of this, they agreed to do the picture as long as they could write it from the East Coast. Now, this was an important move for r in the long run because Fox ended up making all of the film adaptations of r shows except for one. The movie wasn't exceptionally notable, but one standout song became a hit and stood the test of time above the others. It might as well be spring. I think it's also really important for us to address Oscar's mentorship of Stephen Sondheim. At 12 years old, Steve entered Hammerstein's life and was soon to become his lifelong pupil and friend. Now, Steve's mother, Foxy, was a whole situation that we'll dive into in his dedicated podcast, but she was connected with Dorothy Hammerstein, and their sons, Stephen and Jimmy, became friends. After buying a farm home about four miles from the Hammersteins in Pennsylvania, Steve spent many days in Oscar's home and became part of the family. Steve was already skilled at the piano, he was great at puzzles and strategy games, and like his mentor, he was talented at wordplay. He even taught Oscar how to play chess. Steve was brought into the business by Oscar, and we will definitely elaborate more on that in a minute. Carousel was another Hellburn play adaption idea. This time, the play was Lilium, about a servant girl who loves the carnival barker even though he abuses her. And it was actually the multilingual Larry Hart who had translated the play from Hungarian into English. In 1943, at one of r weekly gloat lunches, in which they discussed Oklahoma and future projects, Teresa pitched the ideas to r It seemed a little out of touch to have a show set in Hungary with World War II raging on in Europe and events remaining unpredictable. Rogers brought up the idea of New England as the setting, and everyone agreed. At first, the playwright had refused to allow any musical adaptation of his work Lilium, 
but for the writers of Oklahoma, he made an exception. And just as he had done with Green Grow the Lilacs for Oklahoma, Oscar worked closely with the script of Lilium, turning spoken lines of dialogue into lyrics. After their success with Oklahoma, R&H really had their pick of Broadway's biggest stars to cast, but again, they went largely with unknowns. The biggest challenge for Oscar in this piece was how to deal with the grim details of Julie and Billy's married life. Julie and Billy being the leads. The play Lilium ends with one of the most famous curtain lines in theater history in which the female lead's daughter asks her mother, is it possible for someone to hit you hard like that, real loud and hard, and not hurt you at all? And for anyone who's familiar with Carousel, you know that this line was essentially kept in the musical, and it has long been extremely off-putting. Such a dreamy, sentimental depiction of abuse is very upsetting and disturbing for most modern audiences, and understandably so. I've personally struggled with this line a lot. Part of me sees the opportunity for catharsis that it can have, as someone in the audience may hear the vulnerability in the line and realize that they've felt the same way in their toxic relationship and recognize how terrible and unhealthy it is to think that way. But ultimately, if there's any chance that people in the audience feel that this is romanticizing abuse, it's not good. And I think, unfortunately, that's the effect that it mostly has. So some recent productions have actually omitted this line from the show, and I'm definitely okay with that. We have to recognize Rodgers and Hammerstein weren't perfect, and this is one of the moments that shows that. The writers were very nervous for the playwright's reaction to the show, but he actually loved it and claimed that the changes they had made were his favorite parts. After the opening, the playwright referred to Rodgers as his son. Carousel was named one of the best musicals in the 20th century by Time magazine. The original production ran for 890 performances on Broadway and had a national tour running two years. Supposedly, Carousel is also Rodgers and Hammerstein's favorite show that they wrote. Rodgers is quoted saying, I think it's more emotional. The whole subject matter cuts deeper. I feel it has more to say about human relationships. And I also think it's the best score we'd ever written. I have more respect for it. I just like it better. Irving Berlin referred to the show's song, You'll Never Walk Alone, as holding the emotional power of the 23rd Psalm. We also got the song, If I Loved You, which is a 12-minute scene that bounces back and forth really beautifully between dialogue and song. When Stephen Sondheim had a break from boarding school and watched the show next to Oscar's wife Dorothy, the story of marital troubles and parental regret so overwhelmed him that he wept in Dorothy's arms. When we talk more about Steve later, you'll get a better picture of his relationship with his parents and how a show like this could have spoken to him so much and influenced him so greatly, but I do really think that Carousel influenced a lot of Sondheim's career. This show also contained a lot of innovation. Rogers wasn't a fan of overtures, feeling that they were wasted on bustling latecomers making commotion, chatting, and taking their seats, so he tried something new. He created an opening scene set to music without any lyrics or dialogue that let the audience in on everything they needed to know about both the setting and the show's characters. In about eight minutes, the core of the plot is laid out, accompanied by a set of Roger's sweeping waltzes that he had stored up from a project ten years earlier. It was also one of the first musicals to contain a tragic plot, or a plot that was dark in nature. And it had an unsympathetic central character, which was really, really uncommon. 
This song became known as perhaps the greatest conditional love song of any Broadway score. Sondheim called this scene probably the singular most important moment in the evolution of contemporary musicals. Wow. It also gave us what we now call the hypothetical love song. With the war in Europe now coming to a close, so many American households at this point had been touched by loss. So Carousel resonated in a more visceral way than Oklahoma, with audiences now filled with veterans who had lived through so much horror on the battlefield. One crucial decision that the pair made early on in their career together was to establish their own music publishing company, Williamson Music, named in honor of their fathers. Another really smart decision that they made was to sign a recording contract with Decca Records to publish an album of recordings for the score of Oklahoma. It was performed by the original Broadway cast and orchestra, and it included a souvenir booklet. Now, it wasn't technically the first Broadway cast recording, as The Cradle Will Rock had their original cast recording in 1938, but the huge success of Oklahoma and the quality of the recording brought about a new standard practice for the industry that continues today. I mean, if you think about how we consume musical theater media today, 99% of the time when we learn about a show, the first thing we do is listen to the cast album. The cast album serves as our first exposure to the piece. It's really rare that all Broadway fans around the world are able to pop up to New York City and watch each new show live as it opens, but having the cast recording allows us to begin to experience the show before we can watch it. Guys, we gotta talk about Allegro. For a long time, Oscar had the desire to write a story of a man's life from birth to death, but in Allegro he settled for just birth to about 35 years old. Allegro follows the life of Joseph Taylor Jr., who follows his father into a career in medicine and finds himself feeling vaguely discontented and overwhelmed by all of the unexpected responsibilities in his life, losing sight of what matters most. Now, for those who may not be familiar, Allegro is the Italian musical term for lively and brisk. This encapsulates Joseph Taylor Jr.'s dash through his somewhat empty life. Allegro was also low-key one of the first concept musicals before concept musicals were a thing. Now, a concept musical is described well by its name. It's a musical based on a concept rather than a linear timeline or a traditional plot of events. Style and theatrical devices are used to create a feeling or make a statement, a metaphor, or send some kind of message. But in a concept musical, style and message are much more important than plot. Allegro was also one of the first and only shows in Broadway history in which the creators deliberately set out to make it uncommercial. There were no conventional sets, only pieces placed on a moving stage, and there were some light projections and backdrops, and I find it hard to picture exactly what that means, but we can just know that it was very outside of the box. This show also featured a Greek chorus type of characters that narrate the happenings within the lead male's life. The main character is talked about and sung about, but he isn't even seen in the flesh until he goes to college. And remember, we'd started with his birth. This too reminds me of the opening number of Company, where everyone is calling for and fawning after and revolving around Bobby, but we normally see him pretty early on though. There were 18 principals, 21 supporting players, 22 dancers, and 38 singers. I know we're talking about the course of a man's life here and all the people he meets, but I mean, I guess they hadn't figured out that a single actor could cover several small roles yet. 
All the spectacle of this show ended up requiring a budget of over $300,000, which is more like three and a half million today, over three times the budget they had for Oklahoma. Author Ethan Morden said it was the very first musical ever that half the audience thought it was the best thing they'd ever seen and half thought it was the worst. But seriously, this show has such a similar vibe to Company to me, where we see this cast of characters kind of revolving around the central character's life. And there are many songs sung by the people that just come and go in the main character's life. They come for one song and then they leave. This story was very close to Oscar. He was definitely telling a bit of himself here. The core of the story, as described by Oscar, is a man unable to do his life's work due to worldly pressures. And he too felt the pressure of success and the feeling of being spread a little too thin. Due to his success and also the political activism in his nature, he was constantly signing onto committees and giving speeches, writing articles, going to events, none of which really had anything to do with his art form. Hammerstein is quoted saying, I was concerned when I wrote Allegro about men who are good at anything, writers, doctors, lawyers, business, and who are diverted from the field of their expertness by a kind of strange informal conspiracy that goes on. People start pinning medals on them. People start asking them to join committees or chair committees. They're no longer writing or practicing medicine or practicing law. They're committee chairmen. They're speech makers. They're dinner attenders. And this emanciates their achievements. This musical is so clearly Hammerstein trying to work out his problem that he was having in his own career and trying to find a solution to that problem, or at least a light at the end of the tunnel. I think the problem is, then and even now, the great majority of the population doesn't experience this problem. There may have been a few doctors in the audience, or perhaps even some composers if they lived in the city and wanted to pop in on the show, but most of the audience wouldn't have understood being weighed down by press events and ribbon cuttings. Most American lives just don't look that way. It's a little bit hard to relate to, which is one reason why I think this musical kind of flopped. And with the concept musical concept, I think the audience was just lost. Stephen Sondheim, at 17 years old, was an assistant for the show. He fetched coffee, typed scripts, and tried soaking everything in to understand how a production goes down. But Allegro ended up haunting Sondheim's career in a way. Steve recalled, It was a seminal influence on my life, because it showed me a lot of smart people doing something wrong. Legendary theater producer Cameron McIntosh once told Sondheim, You know, Steve, you spent your entire life trying to fix the second act of Allegro. And this feels so true. And Steve even admitted, that's why I'm drawn to experiment. I realize I'm trying to recreate Allegro all the time. Rogers recalled years later, of all the musicals I've ever worked on that didn't quite succeed, Allegro is the one I think most worthy of a second chance. I still keep hoping. And opening night of Allegro was a famous train wreck in Broadway history. The scenery came crashing down, a dancer got his foot caught in a scenery track and had to be carried off stage screaming, the actress singing The Gentleman is a Dope fell into the orchestra pit, she was actually caught and pushed back on stage and never stopped singing, which is amazing, and at one point, smoke from an alleyway fire drifted into the theater and everyone had to be told to sit back down and that it was okay. <laughs> so the reviews were mostly lackluster, as you can imagine. Cole Porter once remarked that R&H had been so innovative in musical theater that they made it harder for everyone else, but they'd made it harder for themselves as well. The director of the piece, Josh Logan, lamented, 
They were over-anxious. They wanted to do something sensational, and they tried too hard. Hammerstein had proved his own point that too many outside pressures distract from one's true passions. For their musical South Pacific, R&H decided to put comedy on the back burner and focus more on two serious romantic plots instead of one true love story and one comedic foil. We've got to talk about our queen, Mary Martin. Mary Martin was an unofficial protege of Hammerstein's, and she had originally been considered for Oklahoma before they decided on using unknown talents. After months of touring and singing Irving Berlin tunes, Martin's voice was hovering on the lower side than what is typical of a musical comedy ingenue, and after finding out the bass opera singer that was to play her counterpart, she asked R&H, what on earth do you want? Two basses? She's amazing. But R&H cleverly finagled this problem by having these lovers sing together, but almost never at the same time. They would take their own verses and respectfully wait while the other sang. Genius! Oscar struggled writing the script as he'd been turned down for military service and didn't really know anything about the military. But luckily, Josh Logan, the director, had served in the Army Air Corps during the war. It's unclear exactly how much of the script was from Logan's contributions, but it's estimated that about 30-40% to 40 of the finished script was his words. Rogers, too, was worried about writing the score, as the stereotypical sounds of the South Seas were not really in his wheelhouse. But after meeting with the novelist, whose book was being used for this musical adaptation, he was reassured in the fact that the novelist really only remembered hollow logs as instruments, which gave Rogers a little bit more leeway. So he focused greatly on the five-tone pentatonic scale, which is popular in Asian music. We also have to talk about the hair-washing bit. Our queen, Mary Martin, is responsible for one of the best-known songs from this show. The idea came to her while in the shower one day, as she realized she'd never seen any actress wash her hair, like, actually wash her hair on stage. She told R&H about it, and they loved the idea of it. And thus, I'm gonna wash that man right out of my hair was born. And yes, she really did wash her hair on stage every single performance, with real shampoo and water. And apparently, she could never really get all the shampoo out during the song, so she'd wash her hair again in the dressing room, and then again at home before the show, so she wound up washing it over 20 times per week, for three and a half years. A dedicated queen. And I don't know how she didn't lose all her hair. Obviously, one of the most important things to come out of this show was the focus on the undercurrent of prejudice that brings threats to destroy relationships and happiness among couples. The song You've Got to Be Carefully Taught was so important in this show, and I feel like it really was a huge step for Broadway taking concern for racial prejudice and opening up a conversation. This song specifically got a lot of backlash, especially when it started touring around to other places in the country. But Oscar wasn't having it, and let everyone know, I meant every word in that song. But this show really captured the post-war American spirit, which is something R&H seemed to do really well. It was also innovative in its strive for realism. The team made the decision not to have any choreographed dancing in the show. They also decided that every character in the show would be playing a named character with a specific role. No faceless ensemble here. And tickets once again were unobtainable. A line would begin forming outside at the box office at 7am each morning for the 30 standing room seats in that evening's performance. Even the novelist of the book himself had to stand in the wings to see the show, and he admitted that he'd only seen it from the front once. 
This show is a cultural phenomenon. Okay, and this is crazy. Souvenir shops in the city even sold fake South Pacific ticket stubs so that you could lay them out on your coffee table for guests to see and make them believe that you'd gotten to see the show. It won many, many awards, including the Pulitzer Prize for Drama, a first for RNH, and only the second one awarded to a musical. English musical theater actress Gertrude Lawrence had approached RNH to adapt the story of Anna Leonowins as the schoolmistress to the King's royal court in 19th century Siam, which would eventually become their The King and I. They were a little nervous as they hadn't ever written a vehicle with a star in mind. That this was common in their day, think Ethel Merman. People wrote shows around and wrote in songs for specific stars. But RNH had never done this before. Jerome Robbins was originally hired to devise a ballet for the second act of this piece. Eventually, though, he spoke up to RNH and suggested that he have a broader role, as the movement throughout the piece by each character should really be conducted in a certain manner that is telling of culture and background. RNH decided to create a dynamic similar to South Pacific, in which secondary characters were played for drama and tension rather than for laughs. Thus, he helped choreograph stylized entrances and movements of all the characters, which correlated to their status and aided the storytelling. One major obstacle was figuring out how to render the culture of Siam in believable musical idioms and dignified dramatic language. Rogers wanted to create an authentic sounding score that was still not off-putting to American ears. He decided to keep his focus on what he knew produced the best results, writing the best music that he could that fit the characters and the situations. And technically, Rogers' trick was to make much use of open fifth intervals and open fourths for songs sung by Asian characters. The idea behind this is that open fifths generally have an unresolved, incomplete sound that Western ears hear as exotic. Now, I don't like this word. I think it's inherently kind of racist, but that's what my book called it, so there you go. I guess that's what they were going for. Rogers also created harmonies not typically found in the keys in which he wrote the songs for the Asian characters. He also set the songs to unexpected tempos, such as in We Kiss in a Shadow, in which the phrase's natural stresses suggest a waltz in 3-4 time, but Rogers set it in 4-4 with an even emphasis for each word. They decided that the show would look like Siam, but through the eyes of an American artist. I guess they were trying? But yeah, not not their story to tell. Anyways, moving on. Rogers wrote what I think was one of his most innovative songs yet in this show. The song is Shall I Tell You What I Think of You, in which the female lead lets us in on her motivations and emotions while contemplating confronting the king and reflecting on her own self-doubt. It's written in six different sections, each which Rogers set to different melodies, while most songs of this time would typically follow one singular melody throughout. The show won five Tony Awards and was a huge commercial success. It was eventually made into a film featuring Yul Brynner as the king, which he originated on Broadway. He went on to play the king on tours and in revivals, ending up with an amazing 4,500 plus performances in that role. That's insane. As an actress, I can't imagine playing one role 4,500 times, but props to him. That's amazing. And for Pipe Dream, I think Time Magazine put it best in their review of the show when they said, Except for nice music, it's pretty much a bust. That was pretty accurate. Despite the largest advanced ticket sale of any RNH show to date, it had the shortest run of 
any of their collaborations, with only 246 performances and no national tour, no London show, no movie adaptation, and hardly ever any amateur revivals to come. However, I do think there's a really interesting number in this show. The character Doc sings a number called The Man I Used To Be, in which he complains about the fun he's no longer having now that he's got a mission in his career. I think Walter Kerr in the Herald Tribune had something really interesting to say about this. Kerr stated, I wonder if something strangely similar isn't beginning to happen to Rogers and Hammerstein. The authors seem unable to keep their minds on cheerfulness. Philosophy keeps breaking in. It seems that, just like in Allegro, we get a close inside look on some of the issues that RNH were dealing with in their own careers. And then came Me and Juliet. This project was all Roger's idea. It was long a dream of his to produce a show about the behind the scenes of show business, in which there was a musical play taking place on stage and then the trials of the cast and crew behind the stage. It centers around a chorus girl who aspires to stardom and the stage manager who falls in love with her. Oscar wasn't all that enthused by it, but he felt he owed it to Rogers after he'd gone along with Allegro. And in many ways, me and Juliet was Rogers Allegro. And unfortunately, the partners made some of the same exact mistakes they made on Allegro in this piece. They had locked in an opening date and Oscar had to rush the book. He wrote, It is, in fact, an out-and-out -out musical comedy. If this be treason, make the most of it. Unfortunately, the lyrics of the second act opening number were all too telling of the show's fate. The lyrics go, I think the production is fine. The music is simply divine. The story is lovely and gay but it just isn't my kind of play. Oscar later admitted that he just hated that show. I have to admit, I love the music from this show. I think it's great. I don't know, maybe it'd do better nowadays? Cinderella, though we now know it as a stage show, began as a 90-minute live musical created especially for television. One reason for RNH's enduring success was in that, while they were very serious about their work, they weren't snobs about it either and they didn't mind the mass popular culture that came to support it. They didn't consider a TV musical a step down from their usual tier of work. They were still strategic about this. Oscar said, if there is any difference, it's that we're using more care because we're entering a new medium. We do not want to fall on our faces. We want to do the very best we can. And we're very conscious of those 60 or 70 million people who are going to be looking at their television sets that night. Cinderella premiered March 31st, 1957. It preempted the Ed Sullivan Show and General Electric Theater, which were some of the most popular TV programs of the day. What RNH were really trying to do here was to beat out the number of viewers that NBC's popular Peter Pan live productions had had. Principals of public schools received letters from the team asking them to encourage their students to tune into the broadcast of Cinderella. And they scored big by casting Julie Andrews, who was a huge Broadway star following her performance in My Fair Lady. They'd actually met her first when she had auditioned for Pipe Dream, but of course it's probably a good thing that that wasn't her first project with them. Hammerstein kept the Cinderella story simple, avoiding modern brush-ups. At least 107 million people saw part of the program that night, and even today, only the Super Bowl draws an audience close to comparable. The viewers of that TV musical on that one single Sunday evening would have filled a typical Broadway theater seven nights a week for 165 years. 
The idea for The Sound of Music came from a 1956 German film. It told the story of the famous Austrian singing group that fled Hitler during World War II and came to become a touring sensation in the States. And the ever-reliable Mary Martin and her husband agreed to participate. We love you, Mary Martin. It was originally to be a play, but they thought it'd be a great idea to commission R&H to write a tune for the show. However, Rogers didn't think it was a great idea to place his songs up against musicians such as Bach and Mozart in the show, and both R&H agreed that hybrid scores never work. They offered a counterproposal to write their own original score. The real-life father of the family passed in 1947, but his widow, the real Maria, published her first memoir two years later, called The Story of the Trapp Family Singers. The collaborators figured they would need her approval to adapt her family's story to the stage, so they set about tracking her down, which was a hard task. The real Maria seemed to be doing a lot of missionary work traveling to many different locations, and at each port, she kept ignoring letters from someone named Mary Martin. Eventually, the story goes that they were able to convince Maria to give permissions to the tune of $200,000 and agreed to give her three-eighths share of the royalties from the show. Mary Martin herself played a huge part in creating the role of Maria, inspired by her friendship and guidance by Sister Gregory, a Dominican nun who was head of the drama department at Rosary College in Illinois. Sister Gregory was a theater buff and traveled to NYC often to see the new Broadway shows. She wrote Martin after seeing the original production of South Pacific and expressed her admiration for the show's theme of racial tolerance, and they struck up a pen pal-type relationship. Sister Gregory often came backstage to see Martin and her castmates, and everyone fell in love with her. Mary Martin recalled, She didn't act like a nun, or the way we poor ignorant souls thought nuns acted. She was bouncy, enthusiastic. When Sister Gregory heard about the Von Trapp musical, her advice was simply, don't make nuns sanctimonious. I also love this quote from Sister Gregory where she pleads with the writers, please don't have them giggle, chuckle, laugh, and even explode with laughter, but not giggle. When laughter wells up, we are inclined to either smile or go all the way and laugh wholeheartedly. Speaking about the nuns, of course. Gregory became a trusted advisor to all the collaborators, including R&H, and many of Gregory's observations and even some direct lines of dialogue made it into the script. The music, of course, is beautifully executed and contains some of R&H's most recognizable songs of all their work. It was actually arranger Trude Rittman who created the smart choral arrangement for Do Re Mi, which mimicked the sound of Swiss bell chimes. The evolution of Hammerstein's work for the song he originally called Good Things has more documentation than any of his other songs. He began by making a list of pleasant things in life kittens, mittens, ice cream, etc. The repeated phrase at the end of each verse's stanzas was originally, these are a few of the things that I like. But being a kind musician, he knew like was a hard word to sustain while singing. So he changed it to what we now know, these are a few of my favorite things. He also changed pink satin sashes to blue satin sashes to switch another more pinched vowel for an open one that can resonate. And for this, we say, Thank you, Oscar Hammerstein. It's really nice that he had the singer in mind, because I feel like in more contemporary musicals, composers make us sing the worst words with the most horrific vowels and diphthongs on the highest sustained notes. But Oscar was looking out for us. 
Rogers also put in a lot of work on his own, taking Sister Gregory's advice not to make the convent scenes too chant-like or too typical Broadway razzle-dazzly. Rogers thought it was essential for the score to be genuine both to the characters and to their background. Much of the music evokes a spirit of childhood play, such as in Do Re Mi or The Lonely Goat Herd. Our queen, Mary Martin, trained hard for this role and was kind of awesome about it. She slugged a punching bag while singing to strengthen her abdominal muscles, which is genius, and she also did Pilates to improve her stamina and balance. And she spent two weeks living with the real Maria and learned how to cross herself and kneel properly. But it's understandable why she had to train this way. This was a very demanding role. She was in 18 of the 19 scenes, had 14 costume changes, and climbed a flight of stairs on six occasions. With a pedometer on, at one point, Martin clocked in three miles in a single performance. This show was also so important because it addressed freedom and persecution. It was in the middle of rehearsals for The Sound of Music that Oscar was diagnosed with stomach cancer. And for a long time, he kept his health condition a secret, but the cancer was stage four, meaning it spread. The doctor informed his wife Dorothy that Oscar would be dead within a year, which is terrible to think about. Edelweiss was the last lyric Oscar Hammerstein ever wrote, his 1,589th lyric according to the book Something Wonderful. But the reviews for this show, believe it or not, were less than charmed. Critics found that R&H had been creating more of a cliché operetta, too sweet for words. As Kenneth Tynan put it, for children of all ages, from six to about eleven and a half. I think it's really because our sweet golden age was coming to an end. Critics had just experienced West Side Story, Gypsy, Once Upon a Mattress. They were ready for something with a little bit more bite. However, the audiences decided, who cares what the critics say? We love it, and this is a hit. And of course, it ran very successfully for 1,443 performances on Broadway and almost twice as long on the West End. The Sound of Music became the best-selling Broadway score of all time. Six weeks before his death at his New York apartment, Oscar held a party to celebrate his 65th birthday. Among the party guests was Stephen Sondheim. Hammerstein gifted Sondheim a framed portrait of himself. Sondheim asked Oscar if he would sign it, and after thinking for a moment, he signed, For Stevie, my friend and teacher. And Sondheim claims that this was a major moment for him, and still is. This same day, Oscar sat down to write what he hoped might be the beginning of his memoir, and it reads, I do not want to retire. I'm in no mood to retire. This is considered a good time to come to a stop. Perhaps it is, but not for me. I make no room to die with my boots on. Someday I may leave the theater, but I couldn't walk out suddenly. I would have to linger a while and take a few last looks. I would have to blow a few fond kisses as I edge towards the stage door. I would have to look around and sigh and remember a few things, a few people. No, many things, many people. And it is impossible for me to read this without tearing up because anyone who has ever loved the theater knows exactly what he's talking about. I know I do. The secret of his failing health was well kept from the public until the very end. Oscar was still getting suggestions for shows left and right. He even got pitched the light in the piazza, and of course this project came about later on down the line and got completed by Roger's grandson, Adam Gettle, but 
How interesting would it have been if R&H got to it first? Hammerstein passed away on August 23, 1960, and all the lights on London's West End and on Broadway went out at 9pm in honor of the man of such great honesty in life and in theater. Agnes DeMille spoke truth of his legacy. She said, Girls and boys are going to talk with his words, with his point of view, long hence, and may perhaps not be aware whom they quote. He will be in the air they breathe. Rogers, of course, went on to do some great work, especially in terms of developing more modern, early concept musicals and taking more theatrical risks, getting with the times. Collectively, the pair earned 34 Tonys, 15 Academy Awards, two Pulitzer Prizes, two Grammys, and two Emmys. They were international celebrities. Rogers and Hammerstein's scores were unique from almost anything seen previously in popular musical theater. Their songs were written for specific characters and plot points in individual stories. Narrative drive created intimacy. They created well-crafted, beautifully scored shows with relatable characters and strong narratives. Broadway the American Musical says, R&H provided a new kind of commodity, a show that could work on its own dramatic merits and not be held hostage to a gifted star or contemporary tastes. This definitely rings true with their common casting of unknown artists. Oscar's lyrics use complex internal rhyme schemes that express a huge range of emotion from heartbreak and grief to intense joy. He believed that lyrics are not meant to be read silently or recited aloud, but sung. Their power is linked to the music that accompanies them and inevitably heightens their effect, or exposes their weakness. Hammerstein seemed to understand this instinctively, and he kept words conversational, allowing the music to do the work. In this, he was the polar opposite of most of the wordsmiths among his peers, like Cole Porter and even Roger's old partner Lorenz Hart, who was known to be a trickster with words and had the ability to rhyme just about anything. When trying to contrast working with Hammerstein and working with Lorenz Hart, Rogers stated, I think the basic difference between the two men was that Oscar was interested in the what, and I think Larry was interested even more in the how. How you say it. Oscar was interested in what you say. Larry had a peculiar, exciting way of saying things. Oscar said them with a great deal more purity. That purity went hand in hand with a simplicity that Stephen Sondheim would call naked plain-spokenness. Hammerstein's work is full of life, but not liveliness, Sondheim once wrote. He's easy to make fun of because he's so earnest. Roger's writing style was greatly influenced by the world of operetta, specifically by composers such as Victor Herbert and Jerome Kern. He also explored the romantic harmonies and melodies of Schumann and Brahms. So definitely a bit of that classical music sound and that operetta sound sneaks its way into Roger's writing, and that's what I love about it. Generally, he worked with the conventional 32-measure borders of the popular American song, but he added twists and turns that made his music exciting and fresh to the listening ear. In Roger's scores, he created an element of surprise, shifting to a minor key or changing the rhythm suddenly. His music, rather than following the paved path for popular music before him, seems to float right out of thin air, or perhaps right out of the characters living in changing brains. In this, we see how plot or character development overshadows popular convention. Bruce Pomahack, the director of music for the RNH organization, explains, What Roger's facility was, was how many ways he could take you from Doe and then bring you back to it. 
In the book, Something Wonderful, there's this great quote from a music critic who wrote that any attempt to reduce Roger's style to a formula is doomed. He also stated that his melodic invention may have been greater than that of any Broadway composer. Time and time again, you think you can guess what Rogers is going to do next, only to find him doing something else entirely. The titles of the songs themselves, There is nothing like a dame, Oh, what a beautiful morning, I whistle a happy tune, they evoked the infectious, can-do optimism of the era. This style that R&H created embodies the classics of what we now refer to as the golden age of musical theater. With all this praise of the duo, I do want to state that I am certainly not here to say that these men were perfect, by any means. Though they made strides for their time, it is hard to get past two white men telling some stories that weren't really theirs to tell. Flower Drum Song and The King and I, though both beautiful scores, do kind of rub me the wrong way. Rogers struggled with alcoholism and sometimes that affected his work, and both of the men were known to have certain flings or affairs with certain showgirls. Rogers' own children remember that he didn't always have that much time for them when they were growing up as he was so focused on his work. Hammerstein was cold to his children as well. However, while we can recognize that they certainly had their shortcomings as human beings and as creators, we also can't ignore the influence that their music had on society. In their shows about prejudice and culture, they were able to spread their messages to an audience of millions around the world. They essentially pioneered the practice of recording original cast albums of Broadway musicals. They were also the first to explore many avenues of merchandising for their productions, including themed pajamas and dolls. Even as a new generation of composers, lyricists, and directors explicitly rejected and moved beyond the well-made formula that Rodgers and Hammerstein had perfected in favor of concept musicals in which a plot and character were often secondary to style and theme, such innovations would have been impossible if Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hammerstein II had not first blazed the trail. And many of their songs are still being used in American culture and worldwide. When Barack Obama became the nation's first African-American president, the opera star Renee Fleming sang You'll Never Walk Alone from Carousel at his inaugural concert, and it has become the favorite game day anthem of soccer fans worldwide. This is a funny one. During a state visit by the Austrian president, Ronald Reagan's staff ordered the Marines to play Edelweiss because someone thought it was the Austrian national anthem. Even today, visitors to Disneyland's Main Street USA hear the Surrey with the fringe on top from Oklahoma blaring from hidden stereo speakers in the park. It says something about their family-based messages as well. And have you ever heard a TV commercial use the little-known Sound of Music song, My Favorite Things, to entice you to buy a luxury perfume or a bag of Tostitos? Listen to this clip from Roger's 1960 interview with Tony Thomas. Uh, you are concerned that people will like them. It's not... Well, of course you are. You want people to like the songs. You want people to like everything you do. If you didn't, you wouldn't be human. And you'd like to uh, walk along the street and hear some kid whistling a tune that you wrote. This is one of the most gratifying sensations in the world. I like to think that Rogers would be quite pleased to see how much influence his work still has on the world. And surely there are many of us kids walking around whistling their tunes. I know I'm one of them. I think Hammerstein's old idea that you come out and the thing you're writing can explain so much of why we fall in love with these shows or 
really any shows, why we love theater. We're not always falling in love with the story or the characters, we're falling in love with the minds of the lyricist and the composer, the things that fill up their brain and spill out onto the page and into our eyes and ears. It's hard to fall in love with theories or concepts. We're falling in love with these people, how they speak, how they express themselves. And I think that's beautiful. Elliot Norton, Dean of Boston Drama Critics, addressed the University of Massachusetts Spring Convocation in 1954. He noted that while the American theater had produced a first-rate crop of modern playwrights, only one person in 50 among the general population would be able to identify them. But the names of Rogers and Hammerstein are almost literally household words. However, people don't merely know these names. They know the works these men have done. When you mention Rogers and Hammerstein to almost any normal American with a sound heart and good hearing, he thinks at once of songs and scenes and shows which they have written and which have given him great and abiding pleasure. In their work, these two men have touched and enriched the lives of more people than any other American dramatic writers. Happy to me.